WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible line. So glad we can be together. You may be a first-time listener And so let me just say for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions on the Bible. If you have a specific issue in your life or ministry uh, or local assembly where you worship and you're trying to understand what God says, uh, this is a great time to call. You can just pick up the phone and the number is 843 and it's 843 South Carolina Exchange for those listening in other parts of the country. And the number is 525 uh, 1859. Or if you're more comfortable, you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. Uh, Rick, as always, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started. Very good, Pastor. We've got a number of questions on the uh, link here. Uh, Marie from Pooler, Georgia, writes, As a listener of Search the Scriptures, I value your knowledge of biblical truth. I've been a born again believer and follower of Christ since childhood. I was taught in non-denominational churches. Circumstances and family brought us to the Baptist Church five years ago. We are losing our pastor, and I, being a woman, have been asked to sit on a committee to search for a new pastor. We don't have elders, only deacons. We are a congregation-led church. We vote as a whole on the nomination. And this is new to me and is weighing heavy on my heart. I have always been in a church that has elders along with the deacons. They would conduct a search on behalf of the church. My biggest concern is not only the absence of elders, but placing women on a committee to search for a pastor. Would you please let me know your take on this, because I value your input in the matter. I'm praying and searching the scriptures for help in giving my answer to the call. I'm leaning more to saying no because of everything I've been taught about a woman's role in the church. P.S. Any plans for a church in the Pooler area yet? Well, these are these are great questions, and let me just see if I can respond. You know, churches uh, have various forms of government or what we would call church polity. Uh, this sounds like a Baptistic church where typically there's uh, one single elder that you would call the senior pastor, the pastor, and then there's deacons that serve alongside of him. So it's a single elder form of government instead of a plurality of elders. Uh, the argument for a single elder form of government typically is the address that Christ gives to the seven churches. And so he writes to seven angels in each church, the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and so forth. Um, the term angel just means a messenger, and sometimes it is used of a human, and uh, most often, of course, it's used of an actual angelic being that God has created who are distinct from humans. Now, in our English Bible, sometimes we translate the word uh, angelos or angel 
simply as a messenger. In other translations of the world, uh, they don't do that. They leave that up to the reader. Revelation is somewhat of a controversial book uh, in that there are various approaches to it, the preterist view of Revelation, the historical view, and the futuristic view. I take the futuristic view. The preterist view says that Revelation was uh, all completed. It's historical. It's from a Latin word that means past. And so it's all past. It's all completed before 70 A.D., they would see the same with the Olivet Discourse. It's all history. The Antichrist has already been here. We've already gone through the tribulation. The only thing they see is futuristic in Revelation would be chapter 19 forward, namely the return of Jesus Christ from heaven. Uh, is that a wrong view? Yes, it is. It's definitely a wrong view. It's a distorted view, and uh, it comes out of Catholicism. There is a historical view which uh, basically says that the book of Revelation is being fulfilled during church history. Well, it's really not. And so some would take the seven churches of the Revelation and see them referring to different time frames. And then, of course, when you come to the final church, the church at Laodicea, they would say, well, that's the time frame that we're in. So I say all that to say that uh, and, and again, I don't agree with that. I think that's erroneous. That's not really what is in view. He's talking about seven real historical churches that were present to whom the book of Revelation is being written. And of course, not just to them, but to churches throughout the history of the church. But sometimes when you come to a controversial passage, uh, most translations tend to be a little more raw and they lead it out, leave it up to the interpreter. So rather than make it the pastor of the church at Sardis, they just say the angel. But remember, virtually every translation of the world outside of English says the angel here and other passages, like John the Baptist is called the angel of God. Is he a literal angel? No, he's a messenger of God. John the Baptist's disciples are called angeloi, angels plural, of God. They're messengers of God. Were they literal angels? No. And so I, one time uh, I was in the Ukraine and I received a cross stitch out of appreciation. Some of the ladies in the church made it for, and it said to Carl, the angel of the church in Beaufort. They were, they were calling me a pastor, but they used the term angel from their language. So I say that in that some would argue since he's addressing just one angel or one pastor. In fact, some translations don't even render it messenger or angel, they just render it pastor, to the pastor of the church. Now, that's interpretive. I think it's correct, uh, but it is more interpretive, just as um, if you, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So single elder form of government is argued typically from the se- seven letters to the church, but you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So when Paul meets the church leaders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he meets the elders, not a single elder, but a plurality of elders. When James talks about issues that are unfolding in the church, what we would typically refer to today, say, is church discipline, which could be a, a cause of physical sickness that would come into a person's body because they were under the discipline of God. And that's really, I think, what is in view here, not the evangelist who travels the country with this little anointing bottle of oil um, but he says, if any among you sick, suffering, what is he to do? He is to call for the elders of the church, 
not the elder of the church, not the elders of the churches, but the elders, plural, of the church, singular. So I would argue that in the New Testament church, you have a plurality of elders that is functioning. Now, I do think you can argue from uh, a passage like Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that there's what we would call today a senior pastor or a point elder or a lead elder. And so Paul even speaks about elders who rule let the, and work hard at teaching. They are to be worthy of double honor. Um, the point is, is that virtually in any local assembly, there's usually a point person. But I think what's healthy is that point person, people would call me that, say, at Community Bible Church, the senior pastor. But that point person is still accountable to the elder board. And so if all of my elders that work with me, we happen to have seven at Community Bible Church, if they differed with me on an issue, then I wouldn't go forward uh, because we work together as a team and we believe there is a consensus and, and the Spirit of God can lead and give direction on, on issues in which the parameters are laid in the Word of God. There's no new revelation but in terms of applying that scripture, that comes to the day-to-day issues of life. So you're in a church where there's a single elder form of government and deacons, plural. The office of elder, of course, is found in the Old Testament. The office of deacon is not. That's a New Testament office that God brought into play in the first century. Uh, so I think what happens in a lot of churches, in fairness to my Baptist brothers, and I'm ordained in a Southern Baptist uh, church myself, though I pastor a non-denominational church. But in fairness to them, the elders, um, while they have a single elder, the deacons function as elders. But sometimes then the role of deacon is lost. Now, in any elder form of government, usually there's some degree of congregationalism that unfolds. Uh, For instance, in the church that I pastor, Community Bible Church, the elders are chosen by the elders, In other words, it's not some popularity contest where, oh, I think so-and-so would make a good elder, when in reality, he might make a terrible elder. Oh, but he's so successful in business. Well, he might be, but he might not be as you think he is. Maybe he doesn't pay his own personal bills on time. Maybe his business doesn't have a good reputation. Um, Maybe his kids are rebellious. There's all kinds of issues. There's 21 qualifications given for an elder in the New Testament, and they're not suggestions. Now, we're not talking about people of perfection, but we are speaking about a direction that a man's life is to take. And by the way, it is an office that is to be filled with men. There are no women pastors in the Bible. I was at an outreach on Friday night, and a brother came up to me and he said, well, my pastor is a woman. And he said, I'm really kind of struggling with that. And I said, well, you should struggle with it because it's not biblical. And I said, that woman who's the pastor of your church is really in one of two places. She is either A, ignorant of the scriptures, and she does not know what God clearly says, which would immediately disqualify her if she were a male to be a pastor, because one of the qualifications for an elder is he has to be sound in doctrine. And by the way, the word elder, pastor, bishop is used interchangeably in the New Testament, presbyter of the same office, refers to the same person. There's not a hierarchical structure within that. So either A, she's ignorant of the Scriptures, which she obviously is because she's twisting the Scriptures for her own reason, um, and, and that's, not, that's, not, that's not healthy, or B, she's disobedient. 
She knows what the Word of God says, but she's defying the Word of God. And if you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, which is one of the qualifications for a pastor, then I can tell you how she can be an elder, but she can't be. That is a, a male office. And again, it's not dismissing the role and the worth that God gives to women. But what ends up happening, I, I told this man practically, I said, just think about it. This woman who's your pastor, what she has created right off by the fact that she fills the pulpit every week is that though she may say her children are of a high priority, they're not as high as she would say they are because she has taken on a career outside of the home and she's diminished the ideal role. Now, my hat is off to any woman who has to help provide outside of the home to put food on the table. But that's not God's ideal. The man is to be the provider. That's not to say a woman cannot earn money from her home in some kind of a cottage industry. She can, and she may even earn a lot of money, but not to the dismissal of giving the raising of her children to someone else. So they said, number one, right off, she has created a career mentality, not necessarily for other women who will say, I want to be a pastor like her, though some may, because she set a poor example. But look, my, my, my pastor, she works full-time outside of the home. And if you really do the job of a pastor, it's a full-time job. Or, um, you know, and, and so you're sanctioning what God dismisses as error. I mean, that God says is error. And you're dismissing what God clearly says the role of a woman is to, to be. Now, there are some things that only women can do in the church, and there are some things that only men can do in the church. But with that said, the role of a pastor is to be filled with a man. So you're in a church which you've chosen to be with a single elder form of government. Now, if you can't live with that, then you should ideally go to another church. But let me just say parenthetically, um, if it's purely informational gathering, like a lot of Baptist churches, they'll have someone from the youth. They'll have someone from the seniors. They'll have someone from who's married, someone from the singles, and they put all these people on a so-called pulpit committee. To me, it's if it's informational and that's all they're doing, great, but that's not what happens in practice. This pulpit committee made up of all these typically different groups within the church present a person for their consideration. That's just dumb. That's just not wise. That is... Uh, choosing a leader in the church in a way that is not going to hold that person to biblical requirements that are necessary. Tell me what I'm typically, I'm not saying there's not exceptions to the rule, but if you have a 14-year-old youth, does he even know what the qualifications are for a pastor? You know, what 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 is his thoughts behind that? You, so you need to have godly men who are involved in that process. And um, we have a... Uh, we have a survey that we have done when I've hired staff. It's 28 questions that I've written. And I've shared it with a lot of pastors or churches that are looking for new staff. And it really kind of digs under the veneer and you find out where a person is. For instance, an elder must be one who manages his own household well. Uh, So based on that, we have a question. uh, Can we do a, a financial search on you? A credit get a credit report using your social security number uh, based on that principle and what Jesus said in Luke 16 that if you're not faithful in the use of worldly riches, that is uh, your money, 
then who can entrust true riches to you? So, for instance, if someone is uh, going ahead and they're applying to be an elder or a pastor in your church and they don't pay their bills on time, you don't want them as a pastor. That 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 becomes a terrible testimony in the community. Yeah, pastor so-and-so, I, he, I, I fixed his car and he never paid me. See, that's, that's terrible. That, that's not a good, healthy thing. So these qualifications are very, very important. Now, that's not to say there couldn't be a woman who helps gather the information. She might. But the question is, is the man, uh, the person who, who you're choosing, is he really meeting the biblical qualifications? Now, like in our church, uh, the elders are chosen by elders, but ultimately they're presented to the congregation. And on a yearly basis, each of the elders are accountable. And often when that ballot comes and you're not voting on all seven elders, you're voting on one at a time, there's a yes, no next to each person's name. And I'll say, look, if the person is a man of God and my name is on there as well, uh, then uh, affirm them, uh, encourage them with a yes vote. But if you are aware of things that disqualify them from the office of elder, then you have a biblical responsibility to vote no. And so that, that's important. And if someone were voted out, then indeed a new person would have to be uh, found. So you're asking a really critical question. In answer to your question about a church in Pooler, we are still very open to planning a church in that area. In fact, I'm getting ready to uh, go out to an area in South Carolina here of a church that has shrunk to uh, four people. I'm told, I just learned this stat last week from uh, the president of an organization here in the state of South Carolina, and he said 3,500 Baptist churches are going to close in the state of South Carolina this year. Uh, What's happening? People aren't going to church anymore. They don't have enough money to keep the lights on and the grass cut, much less salary a full-time pastor. Uh, the whole fabric of the American culture is changing. So with that said, maybe someone knows of a church building in the Pooler, Savannah area. We're very open to uh, planning a church down there. Uh, let us know, but especially in the Pooler, Rinkin area, and we would be happy to come and take over that building and put a Bible-believing church in that in that stead. So good question. Let's go on. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and our next caller dictated their question, uh, hypothetically, they were, they asked if the Jews had accepted Jesus Christ when he was here on earth, would it still have been necessary for him to go to the cross? Wow. That's a great question. Uh, Yes, it would because his cross was a payment for sin, but let's just say he came and he came with an offer to be their king. Uh, that's the theme of the Gospel of Matthew, that he was indeed Israel's king. And so they were to go first, not into the way of the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but to the Jewish people, because God is a promise-keeping God. But one of the promises that he made was not just uh, that he would come as a sovereign ruler and king, but that he would also be a suffering servant. And if you've been with us in our study, especially the book of Daniel, I noted all the way through Daniel, sometimes in a single verse where there's a, 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 a reference to the first coming of Christ, and there is also a reference to the second coming of Christ. 
uh, when uh, the Lord Jesus in Luke 4, I, let me just cite one example. Uh, here's what I call a 2,000-year comma. Uh, we're going to Israel, God willing, in 2019. And if you're interested, you should go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a little video on there, and there's a brochure that you can download. But one of the places that we'll go to, we're going to seven new places on this trip, but one of uh, that, that I haven't taken people to before. But then a number of the traditional spots that if you're going to go to Israel once in your life, you want to go to Nazareth, and you want to go to Mount Precipice. Now, there are some spots when you go to Israel, I call them a Class A spot, like this happened here. There's no question this happened here. You're, you're standing on the very spot where this event took place. Then I have what I call Class B steps. Hey, it, there's a good chance it happened here or near here. Are we on the very spot? Who knows? Nobody knows. It's not like when, when this event happened, someone wrote a red mark and, and put a rock and a, you know, a marker on it. You know, Jesus uh, did this on this very spot. Uh, but this is a Class B spot. It happened in and around here. Like when we go to Kersey, uh, that was the place where the garrison demoniacs uh, were dealt with and the hogs ran down into the water and were drowned. You go to there, now did it happen 100 yards this way or 100 yards that way? I, I don't know. But it happened right around here. In fact, look right there on that hill. There's tombs. The men lived in the tombs. And the tombs, of course, in that day, as much as anything, were caves. And there's only one place in the Sea of Galilee where you have this hill trajectory that goes right into the Sea of Galilee. Now, in in our day, that's been cut with a road at the bottom so you can, like, drive along the shore. But you can see from the original terrain that it was one continuous hill right down in the water. There was only one place in the Sea of Galilee where that could have happened. Well, there's only one place where on the Mount of Precipice where Jesus, if you remember, he went to uh, into his... Uh, synagogue there is his, was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he, he stood up to read, and, and he read a, from the prophet Isaiah. And in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, I've turned there, uh, you will notice that the typeset in the New American Standard changes to all capitals, and typically that means a quotation, almost always, a few exceptions, uh, almost always an Old Testament quotation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops. If you go back and you read Isaiah 61, he leaves out half the verse and the day of vengeance of our God. He stops right in the middle of the verse. Why? because the first half of the verse dealt with the first coming. The second half of the verse from Isaiah deals with the second coming. He first comes as a Savior. He comes again as a sovereign. He first comes to a cross. The second time, he comes to a crown. The first time, he comes in humility. He comes again in glory. Uh, The first time, he had a crown of thorns on his head. When he comes again, he'll have a diadem, and he'll sit on a throne. But hypothetically, you see, God knew both sides of what would happen. But hypothetically, let's just say, because again, it's a hypothetical question, as you said, uh, what would have happened? Well, they would have um, received him as king. The Roman government would have said, he claims to be the king 
of the Jews. And by the way, the Jews, if you remember, when they brought him to Pilate, they wanted to deal with him on a religious charge. And Pilate says, no, I don't have anything to do with this religious stuff. And so finally, they changed the charge to a political charge. He claims to be a king. Well, look, someone else claims to be a king other than Caesar. That's unacceptable. So what would they have done? They, if he claimed and the Jews had received the kingdom, he would have soon been crucified and probably in a short time later would have just returned after his resurrection to set up his kingdom. But that didn't happen, and God knew it wasn't going to happen. And so there are some passages that deal only with him as a suffering servant and some that deal with him as a sovereign ruler, and some combine the whole work of Messiah in a single verse. And there's a number of passages like that. So um, anyway, in in this, by the way, in Nazareth, the Mount of Precipice, he ends up uh, basically saying that the Gentiles had softer, more flexible hearts to the things of God than they did as Jews, and it made them so angry. They went from marveling at the words that fell from his lips. They carried him. They had to walk about a mile. You know, and I had a Jewish tour guide. He said, oh, you know, you think they walked a mile? I said, look, anger. They, one, they, they have nothing to do in that day, you know, relatively speaking. I mean, obviously, they had a lot to do. You know, you had to grow your own food. You had to wash your own clothes. You didn't use a washing machine, and they had none of the electrical condiments that we enjoy today. Uh, but when people are angry, They'll do all kinds of things. And so they walked a mile all the way to the top of the hill, and there's only one spot in all of Nazareth, Mount Precipice, where they could have thrown the Lord Jesus off and killed him. Only one spot. So it's a Class A spot. There's no debate on that. And, of course, uh, because he was going to die in the Father's time, power emanated from his person, and he walked through the crowd. But, by the way, if you're interested in going to Israel, we'd love to have you. Go to searchscriptures.org. There's a little video there that you can watch. You can also download the brochure, and uh, there's a place where you can register through the agency that we're using. All right, let's go to the next question. Great question. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Michael from Ridgeland would like to know, have you ever read any of Flavius Josephus's works? If so, what are your opinions of these? And how familiar, this is a second question, how familiar are you as a pastor with mental illnesses? Well, let me first deal with uh, Josephus. And Josephus was a Jew. He's born in 37 AD. And uh, he's a passionate Jew. He's a fervent Jew. He, he wants to see the Roman government overthrown. So he's involved in, in these rebellions. He even led a uh, team of... Um, of soldiers, so to speak, in the Galilean region against the Jews. Uh, so he's also a, a great learner. He's an articulate man, incredibly intelligent man, as reflected in the writings that have come down. Uh, and so in the first Jewish-Roman war, he's the head of the forces in Galilee, and of course um, that takes place around 67, and it's finally put down in totally smushed by 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple. And uh, his account on the destruction of the temple is unparalleled. And if you're interested in just hearing those accounts, listen to my series on Daniel, the ninth chapter. I did four messages on that. And, of course, the Daniel, the prophet, predicted 
that the temple would be destroyed. And it's a very important date, and he gives a number of different things that would happen. And anyway, uh, with that said, uh, he's taken as a slave into the Roman government, and he's taken into a slave by um, the emperor, who just admires him incredibly. And he's just like a choice slave. And then finally, he is given freedom by the emperor himself, and he writes extensively of events that had taken place during his time. His first set of works that he writes comes largely from the book of First Maccabees. There's some uh, accounts that are written between the first and second comings of the Messiah. There's a 400-year period between Matthew and Malachi. And especially from about 200 B.C. on, there's a number of books we call them Apocrypha, Uh, Some people call them the second canon. Roman Catholics include them in their canons, so they don't have simply 66 books in the Bible like we do. But they're not inspired, and I've gone through in my class on bibliology, if you're interested in taking that, it's available at the Institute of Biblical Studies. Uh, You don't necessarily even have to take the whole course, but if you just wanted to listen, how do we have just 66 books, and why are these other intertestamental books not received— much less the pseudopigrapha, the false writings that come after the New Testament is completed, like the so-called gospel according to Thomas, the gospel according to Barnabas. Those are not inspired works by God. And so what are the tests of canonicity? So he uses, basically what he does is he, he records all the various wars and revolts that took place from the Maccabean period. And he relies heavily on first Maccabees as well as oral traditions that had come down, and he does a tremendous job in in recording all the wars really up until uh, the time of the destruction of the temple. Uh, he also wrote a work called The Antiquities of the Jews, which um, is a fantastic work for Christians because he writes a lot about the Lord Jesus and how he claimed to be the Messiah, and so you have by an unbeliever— uh, a historical view. Now, there are a few times when people think that maybe Josephus was um, prejudiced, and I don't think that it was he was prejudiced as much as he still had Flavius to deal with. And so his name, he ends up being given the name when he is freed, and he, the, the end of his Jewish name is dropped, and he becomes Josephus Flavius. And he had a great admiration even for the Roman culture in terms of its commitment to uh, academics and learning, and so he admired them, and and the, of course the emperor admired him, and ended up a, a granting his freedom. So if you were going to write about the emperor, and he's the one who gave you freedom, and he's the one who still, in some sense, holds your life in his hands, then you don't say anything negative about him. That's just uh, that's just smart. Uh, if you want to keep living, and this guy, of course, is not a believer. Uh, in the truest sense, he's not a Messianic Jew. But uh, apart from those times where maybe his uh, writing is a little colored, he is considered one of the finest, most accurate, one of the most precise and detailed historians from the first centuries. And so sometimes you will hear me reference uh, the works of Josephus, because again, while they're not authoritative, when you understand, uh, like the Bible is, only the Bible is inspired by God, and you can't allow external works to flavor your view of Scripture, 
very often it complements what we already find in the Word of God. And we say, hey, this is not just something the Christians believed and taught. We have outside historians of the day who affirm the same truth. Uh, mental illness is your second question here. Uh, am I familiar with mental illness? Um, I mean, how can you not be if you live in America? Uh, there's mentally ill people. I met a guy on Sunday who's schizophrenic and uh, he's mentally ill. And there's people, you know, everywhere you go. Now, there, it is true that uh, the question becomes, what is the source of some mental illnesses? And there are some people who end up having uh, mental breakdowns where their blood chemistry is permanently affected due to spiritual causes. Uh, so you sometimes have to weigh that through. I, I remember uh, an F-18 pilot I worked with back in the early 90s, and uh, his uh, mother and dad divorced one another. His brother, whom he felt very responsible, committed suicide, and just one event after another, his wife was unfaithful, and he was not a believer, but he had a total mental collapse. Look, if I if I break my arm, uh, sometimes they can, you know, heal it. If it's a severe vit break, they can put some pins in it. But while it's functional, it may not function on the exact same level as the way God originally designed it. Now that I've got pins in it, maybe even some limitations. Now, I don't have any pins in my arm. I'm just using this as an example. Well, sometimes when, you know, if you take a rubber band and you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it, it can eventually break. And so you could take the ends of it and tie it back in a square knot and it could still function, but it wouldn't function in the same level as before it broke. And sometimes people have mental breakdowns and they need medications to balance them out. Now, I think that there's a lot of mental things today that people are being classified with that aren't mental at all. Um, For instance, when I was a child, none of the kids had ADHD. But now it just seems like scores of them have ADHD. What happened? Is this some some new substance cloud that floated down from from heaven and now people all of a sudden have this new disease uh, called ADHD and that nobody had it before? Look, a lot of kids have a problem, and I'm not dismissing. They have a real problem, but the question is, what is the source of it? Uh, A lot of attention deficit disorders are just that. They are deficit disorders and that their parents aren't giving them the attention they need. And they're being raised on the Internet and on video games and uh, just basic common sense issues are being abandoned and kids are looking for attention and love and affection and mom's gone all day, dad's gone all day, and then they both come home tired and they have a sliver of time with their family. And you don't think that affects kids? Of course it does. And so what do they do in the schools across America? There's a bell that rings typically once a day and the nurses come in and they administer a drug, Ritalin or whatever they're using and uh, to keep the, the herd under control, because if you're a public school teacher and you've got, you know, 35 kids in a class and there's children that just are somewhat out of control, you, you, you drug them up to slow them down. And it's just sad. It's, it's where we are because we've broken God's ways and we think we're smarter than God and that we have 
chosen a plan that is unlike what God has revealed in his word. But look, there was a time in America when, for instance, most moms stayed home and raised their own children. Now that's a very minority group of people, the traditional family. It's a minority group. What happened? Well, there was a time when people did it because we were so biblically entrenched, they knew that was right. And then there came a time when people did it because that's what my mother did. And I'm just kind of following her example but it wasn't rooted in biblical convictions. And that, that's the problem with the seeker church, is that they're not rooting people in biblical theology that changes life. And given enough time, then people adapt to all kinds of things. So you've got all these so-called <clears throat> evangelical churches that are embracing transgenderism or LGBTQ so-called Christians. And, they, and some are saying, you know, you've got three views now. Just take that issue as an example. On one end of the spectrum, you have certain Protestants who embrace it. And so we have Methodist churches all across America, for instance, they're debating, they're praying about it, they're bishops. What are they going to do with this issue? But they've really already decided, number one, because there are men who are marrying gay people and women because they have women pastors as well, and they're not being disciplined. Number two, You've got, to even ask that question tells you you're defeated before you even start. Like a number of other Protestants denominate. We have have two Presbyterian churches on this side of the river that are open in performing homosexual marriages. How can you do that if you believe the Bible to be the infallible and errant word of God? You can't. So that those are authority issues that are at stake. And so given enough time with the secret church, so you've got that one position the far left side, and which is basically the world's position. I mean, what is this whole, every Supreme Court justice, what is it really over? It's over abortion, and it's over LGBTQ rights, not just by necessarily people who are in that lifestyle, but immoral heterosexual people. It's the immoral heterosexual, Romans 1, that is the first stage of a downturn of a culture that then embraces the LGBTQ lifestyle as in an alternative lifestyle. Because if one is wrong, the other is going to be wrong. And so you have to choose and set your own morality. That, that, that's what these elections, election selections are all about. And if we have another Supreme Court justice that is chosen and he doesn't have any issues in his background and he's just clean as can be, it's going to be the same fight. Look, ever before they discovered the first fact, ever before the senator was given a letter from the principal lady that's in view, within 30 minutes, she and the head of the speaker, you know, the minority speaker came out and said, hey, look, and the head of the Senate, that um, we're not going to support these people, uh, we're, we're against them. And, uh, you know, the two minority leaders of the Senate and the House and a number, number of other senators, within 30 minutes, they already were against the guy. Never before they found the first so-called wrongdoing, which I don't think is accurate, but that's neither here nor there. So here's the thing is that the secret church is getting people away from being rooted in the Word of God and given enough time people really get far away from the Word of God and all kinds of problems enter into the church. And uh, so these are all critical issues. That's kind of a long answer to a short question, but I think it was important. Go ahead. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's uh, Bible line, 
And Richard from Hilton Head Island would like to know, why is it that we now worship on Sundays? Well, it's a good question. There are Ten Commandments, and all Ten Commandments still apply. But sometimes, uh, they're, I mean, they're, they're, the Decalogue, they're not Ten Suggestions, they are Commandments. But one of the Commandments, really two of the Commandments, can have a different expression in terms of how we apply them. The commandment is true. It's unchanging. It's forever. And so, for instance, take uh, the promise that God gave. The Decalogue is found in two key passages, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and in Exodus chapter um, uh, Exodus 20. So let me just turn to Deuteronomy 5 here for a moment because you have the expanded um expression of what God says in reference to honoring your father and mother. He says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So Deuteronomus nomos, the second giving of the law. So this is a new generation. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land And so what you read earlier in the Torah is reiterated. And so the law initially is given in Exodus 20. It's reaffirmed here in Deuteronomy 5 with a new generation. But what's interesting is that, for instance, when the Apostle Paul quotes the same commandment in the New Testament, he doesn't change the commandment, but he changes the expression of the application. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Why? So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Notice it's slightly different. So that you may live long on the earth, where originally it says that uh, not on the earth, but uh, on the land. What land? On the land that is known as Israel. So where were God's people? Well, they were primarily located at this point. They're all in Israel when this is given. Now, there comes a time through some dispersions where they're spread to some other countries. But initially, they're all in Israel. Where are God's people today? All across the planet through the spreading and the preaching of the gospel. Same commandment, honoring your father and mother. Same promise that it may be well with you. That's quality of life. That it may be long with you. That's quantity of life. But it's not just in the land of Israel. Now it's across the planet. Well, you could take the same with the the commandment that God gives in terms of the day of worship that, again, he makes it really, really clear here in terms of six days. uh, It says, well, let me back up a verse. Observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner which st- who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest well with you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and so forth and... and um. Interestingly, what's uh, there is a little commentary in the parallel text where it's originally given that you don't find in the second giving, but again, Scripture interprets Scripture, so it's not like one is true and the other is not. 
But the rationale that he gives in Exodus chapter 20, let me just turn there because I don't want to misquote it, though I memorized this at one point, but it may not be crisp, and I don't want to get a single word off when we're dealing with the Decalogue. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male, your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. Then listen, this is what we don't find in Deuteronomy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. By the way, that's significant commentary as it relates to creation. Because when the Spirit of God writes through the pen of Moses, he views the days of creation not as long days, not as days with you know, millennial of time or millions of years between the days, but as six literal, actual 24-hour days. And so that's how the Spirit of God through the pen of Moses understood the days of creation. So for us to try to fit the Bible into, you know, the fanciful views of our day to make it, you know, jive with with, um, science is a very foolish thing in which to do. And we're, we're not to do that. So with that said, God gives a timeless principle of one day in which to refresh ourselves spiritually, one, one and seven. When you come into the new covenant, the principle is still the same, but the application of that principle is now on the first day of the week. And so the Lord of the, heart, the, Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus, has his church meet on the day the church was born. What day did the Spirit of God come? He came on Sunday. That was the day when the church was born. And so what we find by example in Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, is the church meets on the first day of the week and not the seventh. But if you, we've got someone waiting on the line, so we're going to go to them. But if you want to listen to a sermon where I go through all the Scripture and talk about it, its unique specialness to Israel and even how it will change in the future in, during the millennial reign of Christ. We'll go back to worshiping not on the first day of the week, but the seventh day. Go to my Genesis series. There's about 60 sermons that I preached on Genesis, and I think it's the first one out of chapter 2, and uh, you can listen for a very detailed message. And if you don't have the phone app, I go to the App Store. Uh, you download the Search the Scriptures, not for—it's the org— Search the scriptures.org app, and you can listen to any of your messages on your phone. Very good. Okay, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Pastor Carl. Uh, how are you doing today? And Rick? I'm Thank doing fine. Doing Thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling today. What can we do to help you? Well, I have a question regarding um, Revelation 14, 14. Um, it says... And I agree that this is the Lord Jesus. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind. But my question is, in the New American Standard, it says, like a son of man, whereas I think that I know the New King James, I think the King James also has the articular there, the son of man. And I know it's a different application from the Old Testament when we had Christophanes. However, I do know that, you know, it's, when it's referred to as an angel of the Lord versus the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is speaking to, you know, 
a Christophany, whereas an angel of the Lord is a special angel or, or an angel that serves the Lord, but is not a Christophany. So I was wondering, in original languages of the manuscripts, is it articular or is it, uh, you know, how does that come out? Yeah, that's, no, that's, that's a yeah, that's a great question. So Revelation fourteen fourteen, and I just preached this passage last Sunday. We're working through the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, this person is distinguished right off from the six angels that are mentioned in this chapter and that he is like a son of man. So he is affirming, among other things, that he is human, that this is not an angelic being. And, of course, not to mention he has a sickle in his hand, which in the context is dealing with judgment. Now, God uses as his uh, instruments to carry out the judgments, angels. For instance, Jesus spoke in the Olivet Discourse of how his angels will go across the planet and gather up his people and separate the believers from the unbelievers. But the, the sickle, of course, being a symbol of judgment, which I went through on Sunday's message, and he's sitting on not just a cloud, but the cloud. Um, and we walk that through uh, from a number of passages in the Bible where the cloud is a picture of the Shekinah, uh, a, a term that we use to describe the glory of God, not a word that's found in the Bible per se, kind of like the word Trinity. It's a descriptive term of a biblical truth. So with that said, um, virtually no commentators take any other position that what is in view here is the Lord Jesus Christ. So nobody really debates that. The point of debate is maybe how you should write this because, number one, it is not articular in the Greek in any manuscript. It doesn't say the Son of God. It says a Son of God. Now, if you go out into the marginal reading. If you capitalize it and you choose to put emphasis on the fact that, yeah, this is the Lord Jesus doing no interpretation at all, and you capitalize it, then you're going to put the article there. So in the marginal reading of the NAS, it says, or the Son of God, or or the Son of Man, excuse me, not a Son of Man, but the Son of Man, because that's just proper English, and if you're going to interpretively capitalize it, then you're going to put the article in front of it. But the article is not present in the Greek. It, that, that's an interpretive, that's a, that would be an English decision out of respect, just like, um, for instance, in the New American Standard, whenever there's no doubt at all that the pronoun, say, him, is a reference not to a human but to God Almighty, they, they capitalize it. But here what's in view is, I think, an underscoring of the fact that uh, this, to distinguish him from the six angels that are mentioned in this passage, that this is a real human. Uh, Angels are persons and that they have the attributes of personhood, intellect, emotion, will, but they're not human persons. They're angelic persons. And people are uniquely made in the image of God. And someday, while for a while we are a little bit lower than the angels, Someday we will go back to the original position above the angels. In fact, we will judge the angels, Paul says, and he uses that as a motivation 
if someday we're going to judge the angels, can't you guys figure out the little problems you got in your local church rather than to taking them to some human court? But the term son of man is a messianic title. And so we looked at, for instance, uh, the um, confrontation that the Lord Jesus had with Caiaphas. And Caiaphas asked him directly, are you the son of God? Now, in Luke's account, he just says, I am. Uh, In Matthew's account, because it's written to Jewish people, he goes into the more lengthy answer that the Lord Jesus gave. And he quotes the prophet Daniel, the seventh chapter, where you see the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days to God the Father. And so when he's asked, are you the Son of God? He says, yes, I'm the Son of Man. And he quotes Daniel chapter 7, because the terms Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David were all Messianic terms. And in the first century, for Jesus to say, I am the Son of Man, was to say, I am God the Son, And, of course, this immediately caused Caiaphas to tear his robes and accuse him of blasphemy, just like the Jews did on another occasion when Jesus said, why are you stoning me for the good works you do? No, but because you who are just a man, you're you're making yourself out to be God Almighty. So when Jesus said he took on upon himself the title, the Son of Man, now, unfortunately, today, most Jewish people see the coming Messiah as just human. Depends on the Jew you're speaking to. And so you have to go back really to the scripture, to their scriptures, and very carefully help them to think this through, that a child is going to be born and the child's name will be called Mighty God. Uh, that's, a, that's a term of deity. A baby is going to come at some point in human history, the prophet said, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. So in the New American Standard, what they are doing is they're putting the emphasis in the fact that the one pictured here is like a son of man. He is a real human. And, of course, the terms that are descriptive of this real human to distinguish him from an angel is that he has a sickle in his hands. He's sitting on the Shekinah, um, and he is going to judge the world. Not even the Father judges anyone, but all judgment has been given to the Son, the Lord Jesus affirmed. In five major English translations like the HCSB, New King James, um, uh, the ESV, they capitalize it. And they're putting the emphasis n- not on uh, the fact that he's merely a human, but on his deity. Uh, but to say one was to say the other. Now, understand there are no capitals, there's no lower cases, and the originals, the manuscripts we have, they're either all caps or a lower case. And so those are interpretive uh, issues that translating teams will often do. Well, another hour has slipped away. But we're glad that you could join us for the Bible line. And if you have a question that you still want answered, you can always email it at tbl, tbl at the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. And we'll be happy to receive your question. Rick, um, let's sign off. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Pastor.